So <coughs> I thought on the occasion of uh, bringing our sixth graders into the fold, uh, we would talk a little bit about um, the relationship between God's grace and God's word. And so this morning, I want to just sort of take up the topic of God's unlimited grace. This, this concept that was once held captive, ironically, by the people of God who misunderstood the nature of his grace. Um, God's people for uh, a long time were living under the impression that God's grace was just for them, just for people who were like them. And, of course, that was never God's uh, full intention for his grace to be limited to one group of people, uh, but rather they were to be a light to the whole world. And that got a little bit... uh, clouded by his people as we are prone to do we always want to put ourselves in the position of of those in redemptive history who were missing the point we we get more out of God's word that way I believe and so we're going to take a look this morning at a passage in the Old Testament that clearly redirects the hearts of God's people toward those outside of their bounds toward those who are not like them. And this is a picture of God's unlimited grace, and it also gives a very clear articulation of the the place of the word of God and the life of God's people. And so I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 13, uh, which, if I'm not mistaken, is the whole chapter. Is that correct? think it is yeah so we're going to read chapter 55 of the book of Isaiah you can you can you know check that off you read an entire chapter of the Bible today Um, no extra charge for that all right so Isaiah chapter 55 come everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has no money come buy and eat Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord 
that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. I had a seventh grade football coach that at the time I could not stand. I'll try to um, I'll try to recreate just a you know a, this is a hypothetical conversation that might have taken place between a sweaty, tired seventh grader and his coach. Masterson, hit the pole. That means there's a telephone pole about a quarter mile away that has a red stripe or orange stripe painted around it and you had to go touch it and come back. So if you were uh, distracted, if you were pushing another player, if you were uh, you know, doing something you weren't supposed to be doing, you could expect hit the pole, right? And if you said anything after hit the pole, like, but coach, what does he say? Hit it twice. Oh, but, wait for it, that's three. All right, so now you've run a mile and a half in the baking Texas sun in the weather bowl of gumbo called Houston. Um, And uh, over time, even I can learn that it's much easier. I know, it's hard to believe And I'm waiting, when I get home today, Kathy's going to say, hit the pole, right? (laughs) But even I can learn over time that it's easier to just hit the pole than to argue and have to hit the pole twice or thrice or more. I think I held the record 
in seventh grade football for a number of times the pole was hit. Some of you don't find that difficult to believe. Um, the coach's word was final. There was no arguing. There was no appeal. Um, and actually, he, he gave me another line uh, during that year that always preceded hit the pole or, or hit it twice, which was, don't talk back to me, son. Hit the pole. Right? And uh, hated that guy. Right? But over time, you learn his word is final. There's no appeal. There's no higher court on that field. And so you hit the pole. If you don't want to keep hitting the pole, you hit it the first time without saying anything, right? Now, I've probably given you the absolute wrong starting image for a sermon on grace. Have I not? Um, but that's, that's partially intentional because God in his word is always setting before us a tension, a tension, obvious tensions in his word between his law and his grace, right? We don't, we don't have to question that. It's, it's just obvious. Um, and here, the tension between his law and his grace is very clear. That there is this, this grace, this call to come to God at no cost to us. Um, there's this call that when we thirst, he has the water that will quench our thirst. And at the same time, there is this pronouncement of his word and its eternal, unchanging standing before us as his people. So that in a, in a crazy, tumultuous, changing world, we have something fixed and solid and eternal that is set before us. So let's move through this passage and see if we can pull out some of that tension between uh, God's law or God's word and God's grace. And let's see what uh, this passage calls out of us. First, I would say that Isaiah calls us to accept God's grace for free. This is clearly where he begins this thought in this chapter. Um, if when we were reading verses 1 and 2, uh, you were evoking thoughts of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, you were correct. Isaiah was Jesus' favorite book to quote publicly. Um, the account, the occasions on which he was reading God's word publicly were he was reading the book of Isaiah. So the idea that um, something from the book of Isaiah might evoke thoughts of what Christ said is, is pretty straightforward. He, he went here often. Um, 
But God says if we are to accept his grace at no charge, we have to be those who come to him thirsty and poor. That is, with a thirst, but without attempt to pay for our own grace. If I give you a gift and you pay me for it, that was not a gift. That was a transaction, right? And God says, my grace is a gift. And so you have to come to me with empty hands, empty pockets, and a thirst for what I have. And that thirst obviously quenched in the one who said, I am the water of life. And so we have to know that we cannot earn soul satisfaction. We cannot earn the satisfaction of our souls. It's a gift. It is grace. And then God in verse 3 makes this shift to, if you look at some of the words, you see this talk of everlasting covenant and then steadfast, sure love and this allusion to David. David stands as the the one true king over Israel to whom God had promised that his throne, his reign would be eternal. That there would be a descendant of his who would reign on the throne of David forever. And so Isaiah is speaking in a time where Israel is crumbling, um, if, if not crumbled, and most hope is gone, and he makes this statement that I will make you with an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This is said at a time when people would have been going, <laughs> right, yeah, that throne of David that's now been carried off or almost about to be carried off, if my history is correct. Um, but everyone could tell the time was short where David's throne would remain in Jerusalem. And God utters this promise. And, and just fast forward 50 years and the people reading this would have been laughing. Oh yeah, great promise, God. Uh, that throne is gone and the temple is gone and all of our hope is gone and so God speaks these words at a time of tumult and confusion and fear but I want to just point out a couple of words in that verse that first he talks about you see where it says um, steadfast sure love this is the Old Testament word for grace Um, grace is an abstract concept they didn't have that for us it is they didn't have that concept back then so they used this word that conveyed this idea it was most often translated if you grew up reading the old King James like like Jim I think was where you you were part of the original like distribution of the King James weren't you King Jimmy that's right King Jimmy to me um 
But if you grew up with the old King James, it was translated almost every time in the Old Testament as loving kindness. That's the word, loving kindness. Um, so this idea of grace here in the Old Testament, alive, like presented to the people of God as the point of their certain hope. And then this idea of covenant. Isaiah speaks in verse 3 also of, of an everlasting covenant. That is a word that's uh, in, embedded in the name or in the word for covenant is this idea of cutting, this idea of, of, of blood, of a knife or any sharp implement, cutting through flesh. And we have a promise that God is saying, in which God is saying to us, that he will, he will cut, he will permanently etch his love into our hearts. That God's love works in such a way that once the cut is made, it's permanent, it's forever. And so this embedded promise here that the thirsty and the poor who cannot earn the satisfaction of their souls can find this place where God permanently cuts into their hearts his love. I, I grant you it's a little bit of a weird way of saying it, but this is Hebrew culture. These are ancient people. Blood always got their attention. Um, so we, we accept God's free grace by coming to him thirsty and poor. And then, Isaiah reminds us we have a responsibility to show God's free grace to unlikely people. God actually says in the Old Testament, he says to Israel, I didn't choose you because you were better than other peoples. I didn't choose you because you were greater than other nations. Um, I only chose you as a demonstration of my steadfast love, my loving kindness, my grace. And so we are to recognize that we are unlikely targets for the grace of God. That I shouldn't be here. Uh, I don't deserve the blessings I enjoy. And Neither do you, and that's the whole point, that we're not getting what we deserve, and I, spiritually, I don't want what I deserve, right? That would be ugly. Um, what we want is what God gives to us apart from what we deserve, his grace. And when we receive that, we have to recognize we are unlikely recipients, which makes us then responsible to turn and look outward and ask ourselves who in our lives are unlikely potential recipients of God's grace who are the unlikely and Isaiah says you will you will extend grace to a people you don't know and a people who don't know you will come to you looking for grace and we're not just to extend grace to the people who are like us but rather, we're to look around our lives and, and ask, who are the unlikely people? Those, ironically, are the most likely 
to be changed. So, we must remember that we are God's example to others and that God can change anyone. Um, you know, I think one of the, how do I say this, greatest aspects of being involved in this church for um, what, like 16 years now, half of eternity, something like that, um, is, is watching the people who I just absolutely know will never change go through spiritual change. Um, and I'm wrong every time. So, again, if you give me enough repetition, if I hit the pole enough times, I learn to stop questioning God's ability to change a human soul. Craig never thought I'd see you here. Am I wrong? Did you ever think you'd be here when we met? No. Um, and, and you're not alone. I guess you're just easy to pick on because you're so frail. Um, but God breaks through unlikely people and pours out his grace and brings about change. And who are we? Uh, seriously. How, what a condemnation on myself that I would look at any of you and go, no, she's way beyond the grace of God. I don't think she'll ever change. Um, wrong again. Hit the pole. Um, so we're to accept God's free grace, and that comes with a responsibility to then share God's free grace. And then Isaiah moves on to say that we are to seek God's grace today, to seek him while he may be found. Um, this, now, is the best time to reconnect with God. Let me try to explain why. If you're like me, and you're contemplating a, a reconnection with God, you already have dozens, if not hundreds, of reasons why you should wait. Well, you know, I'm just, I'm not in a very good place right now. I'm, I've got some sin in my life I need to deal with before I get back together with God. That makes a ton of sense, doesn't it? But I've said that in my own life. Um, we all have hesitations. And Isaiah knows that. And he says, get over it now. Now is the time. Come to me now or come to him now. We hesitate because we think that our sin disqualifies us from God's grace. 
let me be clear. Your acknowledgement of your own sin is what qualifies you for God's grace. God's grace doesn't really bloom in our lives until we recognize our own sin. And so at that point, we are exactly where God wants us. And now is the time to begin. We look at our sin as a disqualification. God looks at you very differently. He looks at you and says, I love you. You're forgiven. I've dealt with your sin. I've paid for that sin. So you can come to me and eat and drink at no cost. Now is the best time to find him, and his word is the best place to find him. God gives us his word, and he tells us that when we engage him through his word, we will grow and be nourished. We will change. It takes root within us and blooms and produces good in our lives and he tells us that his word will always complete its work how do i say this that is really good news um when we live out god's word when we express god's word to another when we live in such a way that God's word is alive through us, we don't have to worry about the outcome. I'll I'll put it this way. You know, if I preach a terrible sermon, no one goes to hell because I'm not good at preaching. This says that God's word goes forth and does not return to him empty. The validity of what we do as Christians is not based on how well you and I perform, how far up the ladder we work. It's based on grace. And so here is that tension between the law and grace just beautifully brought together. That it's, it's God's unchanging word that relieves the tension, that allows us to enter into his grace without pressure or fear. It will grow and nourish us. It will always complete its work. And so we are those who are called to enjoy his grace forever. This is not about religious obligation. What we do here is not about obeying the rules. It's about enjoying our restored relationship with our Creator because of what Christ has done to allow that to happen. We are called to live in joy. We must be defined as hearts that are joyful. That's our place in this universe. We are the fellowship of the forgiven, of those who felt completely disqualified 
from the grace of God, but who were proved otherwise by the Son of God. And so, to live in joy, Isaiah tells us, means that we enjoy the gift of peace with God. Our souls are at rest in the hands of a loving God. And we join the chorus of praise. Um, Isaiah gives this funny image of uh, you know, trees clapping their hands. Okay, that's a little weird. He's, he's not, not always a great poet. Um, but the idea that the whole universe celebrates this grace that we have been folded into. And as we live in joy, we also live in strength. We live in the joy of grace having been forgiven, and we live in the strength of God's word that never changes, that never fails. Isaiah uses an image here that is actually fairly compelling to me. If you, if you drive out west from here, you will eventually get to land where there's nothing but thorns and briars. What? Oh. Oh, they're blaming it on each other. Yeah, I see. Okay. Um, and let's just call this in general West Texas. So when you're in West Texas, how do you know where the water is? There's trees. It's a different kind of green. Right? And you can see the, the cypress trees along the shore of a creek or the cottonwoods along the shore of a lake. And they're a different color green. They're a different height. They're like the height of what real trees are like. Right? Um, and Isaiah said, well, you know, just work with me. Work with me. Yeah. For West Texas. Yeah. Um, Isaiah says that's the change that takes place in us. We go from this thorn and briar subsistence, barely uh, pulling enough water in to survive, to this thriving grove of cypress and myrtle trees right rooted in to the water. From these plants that the roots uh, come up and they become tumbleweeds quite easily to these trees that are deeply rooted in the truth of God's word. And so, to enjoy his grace forever means living in joy and living in strength, resting and rooted in his grace and secured by his unchanging name. You belong to the Lord God Almighty. You are in his hand. It is his strength that sustains you, and his love that lives within you. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for your word, your eternal, unchanging word, and the way that it cuts to the heart of what we need and calls us to come and to quench our thirst in your presence, to take in and be nourished by the word that you give us, as you remind us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
Lord, may we live in the strength of your word and the joy of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.